Well, I'm happy to have been asked to share with you today. Uh, Could you imagine that for 2,000 years, more than 2,000 years, I've been sharing the same story? Could you imagine it? Would you please imagine it? (laughs) See, I'm a shepherd, or I was a shepherd at least. I'm a shepherd, and, and one night, Something happened that changed my life forever. And ever since, I've been sharing the same story over and over again. It was the night that we were out on our field, right? It was a normal night. Uh, It was clear. Uh, It was a little cold, as it is. We were leaned up against the rocks. I think I was the only one awake, uh, and we were watching the sheep. But I think before we get into it, you might not understand, it's, it's been a long time since you had shepherds like I was. So I was a hired shepherd. Some people would have a lot of sheep and they'd have one of their young boys go watch the sheep and go out into the field. That was one thing. A hired shepherd was a little bit different of a thing. A hired shepherd was a job that really was kind of the end of the line job. It wasn't kind of your plan A for life or your plan B, kind of shepherd is kind of somewhere close to starvation, but I need some work. So so shepherd, uh, it it wasn't an esteemed job, and actually, us hired shepherds were looked down on quite a lot. Uh, People would hire us to go watch their sheep uh, because they didn't have anybody else to do it, or their kids didn't want to or need to, they could get education or something. So they'd hire us to go watch their sheep, but then we'd be gone with lots of property, a lot of their property, for a long time. And they'd wonder, was there really only one lamb that was born? Or were there more? And you took one. And they'd wonder, you know, that that accident you told me about, that sounds really bad, but are you sure you didn't eat one of those sheep? Or sell one of those sheep? Right? There was a lot of suspicion. And we'd be going uh, through the fields for, for months and days at a time. We're driving sheep uh, to good pasture land forever. And, and property owners would wonder, are you grazing those sheep in my land? My land looks a little bare. Have you been stealing our pasture land? And so shepherds, you know, I was, I was looked down on. And, and unfortunately, uh, I, I can't tell you that all those conceptions weren't true of me, you know? I was trying to make it day by day, and no one was going to think good of me anyway. So I was a shepherd. We were shepherds. We were watching over the sheep, Uh, at least I was, I think they were asleep, when this guy comes up on us in the middle of the night. And you got to understand, when somebody comes up on you in the middle of the night, out in the fields out there, that's a scary situation. That's probably, it could be a robber, right? Somebody who thinks that they're badder than these bad shepherds and they're gonna take our stuff, right? This is not good. Or uh, maybe it's some crazy landowner. Maybe I'm on somebody else's land and instead of waiting till morning to run us off, they're gonna come out and have this big confrontation. I'm scared. But then I realize it's worse than I thought. There's this glowing. There's this like shining. And you know, it's, it's the glory of the Lord. 
You know, which is weird, because if you, somebody told me, I saw the glory of the Lord, I'd be like, well, how do you know it's the glory of the Lord? Well, it, it turns out, when you see it, you know it's the glory of the Lord. <laughs> you just know, somehow. And, and, and so it's an angel, right? And so this is, this is worse than I thought. I thought it was just a robber or a crazy landowner. But, but you got a hint of the kind of guy I am and, and now the glory of the Lord and there's this angel looking serious, looking at me. Am I, is, is this it? Is this the end of me? Am I finally getting judged for who I am, for what I've done? But he says... Do not be afraid. He says, do not be afraid. Which is, you know, you'd think uh, that that wouldn't work. But, uh, but I guess when it's an angel, it works, right? So all of a sudden, I'm finding myself in this crazy situation. I'm tapping the guys. They're starting to wake up. And this angel is saying, do not be afraid. And now I'm not afraid, but I don't know what to feel. And he says, I bring good news of great joy that will be for all people. He's got the wrong people. <laughs> good news of great joy for all people. You're going to tell me the news, and then what, am I supposed to tell people the news? I'm a shepherd. When I come into town, people are like, here's your money, throw a few accusations at me, and then get me out of here. Why, do, why would I have good news of great joy for all people? And he says, uh, then he starts going into something really weird about uh, a Messiah. And I knew a little bit about the Messiah, right? I, when I was a kid, I'd, I'd go to synagogue, uh, and, and I learned a little bit about this, but it's been a long time since I've had any religious talk around. And he says, today in the town of David has been born the Savior. He's the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you that, that you'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Well, that would be a sign. Who would put a baby in a manger where you feed the animals? I'm confused, I'm perplexed, I'm not afraid. I'm actually a little excited. But then all of a sudden we're surrounded by like this army of other angels. I mean, these guys are serious. They're like dressed for war. This is like what they call the host of God, the army of God. But it's weird because I'm a little afraid, but they're not, they don't seem to be there for war. They're like slapping each other on the back. They're like high-fiving. It's like the end of a Seahawks game when we barely won, right? If you're in the stadium, everybody's going crazy. They're excited. And they're saying to each other, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace among those on whom his favor rests. On whom his favor rests. And they're, they're looking at me like, like his favor rests on me. And I, I kind of start 
to believe it. I don't know. I mean, who am I to argue? And so, so before I know what's happening next, I just I feel my legs moving. I'm, I'm going over rocks and dirt, and I'm looking around, and the, the guys are there too, and we're saying, well, I guess we're going. I guess we're going to go see if what's come to pass in Bethlehem, in the city of David, in the town of David. And so we go, and we get there, and we're out of breath, and it's about dawn, and we see this girl, and we say, uh, is there baby in town? Like in a manger. And she's like, oh, yeah, right over there. What? Right over there. There's the stable and the manger and the baby. And so, so I get to the, get close to the, the stable there, um, but I'm nervous. You see, last time that I went to go see a baby, uh, my brother had a kid. Uh, I heard about it out in the fields, and I went to go see. Um, and he was nice about it, but he greeted me at the door, and he said, you know, this is a newborn and very fragile, and, and I knew I was dirty. Uh, and I, I had a strained relationship with my brother. We didn't get along great. And he said, well, thanks for coming, but, you know, it's not really a good time. And that's the last time I saw him. And so I'm nervous. I'm at the door, and I know, why would anyone want to see me? But I, but I call in. Hey, is there, is there a baby in here? And I hear a man's voice, and he says, yeah, there's a baby in here, but what do you want? Oh, man. I said, ah. Oh. Well, it's going to sound weird. It's, it's we- it is weird. An angel told us in the field that we'd find a baby in a manger, you know, wrapped in claws, lying in a manger. And then I hear a woman's voice, and she says, oh, come on in. Like, this wasn't weird to her at all, all this angel talk. And so we come in. And, man, you wouldn't believe how much joy it is. Me, a shepherd. I mean, I'd given up. I was okay with being a shepherd. I'd I'd given up on kind of having a family and being welcomed into things. I'd kind of given up on figuring out the meaning of life or, or being connected. But here, I'm in the middle of it. I'm in the middle of this family and this, with this baby. We're heavens meeting earth. And, and I didn't even feel afraid or ashamed anymore. I just felt like I belonged. I felt so much joy. And I looked down at the baby, and the baby, the baby this baby Jesus is looking right up at my face. And he's got this little, the corners of his mouth turn up. And his eyes kind of start to squint down. Then he kind of relaxes his face. And then Mary says, well, we're going to need to change that cloth, that bottom cloth. <laughs> and, and so she, she takes it off, and then she, she hands it to me. She says, oh, could you go wash this? And I've never been so happy in my life. I'm walking out to the well, and I'm getting water, and I'm washing the, you know, it's that black one, you know, the first one. I don't know if you know. Sticky one. It's really hard to wash. <laughs> and, 
And the ladies getting their water for the morning are looking at me like I'm crazy. And and I I am kind of crazy, and I'm happy, and I'm joyful. And I'm part of it. I'm part of it for the first time. You know, everything changed for me that day. I'd given up on joy. I mean, I'd given up on, on really being connected. I was fine by myself. But now, I felt like I was supposed to tell the story. It seemed like the angel said I was supposed to tell the story. So I, I told the story when I went into town. And, and people said, you know, they, they don't like shepherds, right? But, but they could see in my face, you know, the joy, and it made them happy. And I don't know if they believed me or not, but every time I'd go into a town after that, I'd come in, and I'd be ready to tell the story, and they'd gather the kids gather the kids for me to talk to them. Shepherd. And I tell them the story about that night, about the angel, about the baby, about the Messiah's poop. Man, I never knew I could live life with that much joy. Sometimes joy makes me cry. (laughs) I'd like to invite um, our storytellers um, today, Stephanie Bestland um, and Maggie England, but we're going to invite Stephanie first, so if you can uh, welcome her. Um, So my senior year of college, I studied abroad in Europe for three months. And when I think back to that trip, there are two snapshots that come to mind right away. And the first one is we're in Vienna, um, the second week of the trip. We stayed there for the first bit. And the second week, and the snapshot is I'm sitting on the balcony um, alone, in the balcony of the dorm room that we were staying in, and a bunch of my travel companions and classmates are inside laughing and having fun and, and starting to bond. And I'm alone on the balcony because earlier I'd gotten my first call home to my family. They told me of a deeply personal loss that had happened for myself and my family. And that triggered me into a season of darker depression than I'd ever experienced. And so I'm sitting alone in this chair praying, hoping somebody would come out and just touch my shoulder and see how I'm doing. And nobody did. And I've never felt more alone, more isolated. Um, And that was the beginning of the trip for me. Now fast forward three months to the second snapshot. Um, We are in Paris for four days, and this was in between two longer stays. And at that point, these travel companions, my classmates, had become family. I did not know how close a group of 25 students could get. Like I experienced such true, beautiful community with them. I didn't know it was possible. It was so close, and so just complete opposite. And so we're in Paris for kind of like a mini vacation between two longest days. We're not really worried about homework at that point, just trying to soak in everything of, well, almost coming home in a few weeks. So just trying to soak in the last bit in Europe. And um, the first night, 
we didn't have much time, so we were like, let's just go check out Notre Dame um, quick. And it was close to where we were staying, so it was already getting late at night. We go to see Notre Dame, and it's gorgeous and beautiful, and we're soaking it in. And um, across the street, they had set up bleachers for some kind of event, I think, earlier that day or the next day. So we're like, oh, let's go to the top and, you know, look at Notre Dame. And so we, to me and two friends um, climbed to the top, and we're looking at Notre Dame, and it's gorgeous. And I was like, oh, I, you know, I didn't know it was across the street because the bleachers were there. And so I turn around and I see a sparkling Eiffel Tower about this big <laughs> in the distance. And it's just breathtaking. If you don't know, the Eiffel Tower sparkles every hour on the hour, every night. And it just it lights up and it's like the best Christmas lights kind of you've ever seen. It's just gorgeous. Um, and so the fact that I happened to turn around right as it was sparkling was pretty cool odds. Um, and I was like, guys, guys, look, like, it's an Eiffel Tower. Like, that's the first time we've seen it, and it's gorgeous. And we're like, Are we, do we have to be back at any time? We're like, I don't think so. Like, let, let's go. Let's find the Eiffel Tower. And so me and two friends take off running. If you've ever been in Paris, um, the Eiffel Tower and Notre Dame are about three miles apart. We didn't know that. Um, <laughs> so we're, we're running. We're running along um, the Seine River, and we're passing the Lock Bridge and all these other gorgeous sites. We're like, oh, we'll have to come back to that. We'll have to come back. Um, but we're trying to make it to the Eiffel Tower, and it's like you know, sparkling between buildings. At that point, it's taken us so long. It only sparkles for a minute, and then you know the next hour, and we get there about an hour later when it's sparkling again, and it's just gorgeous. And now it's looming over us, and that moment was so amazing. Being there with these two now brothers and sisters, and we—it was just complete, indescribable joy that I experienced in that moment, and. To the point where the three of us were like, we can't even take any pictures of this. Like, we can't capture it. And you know it's a big deal when three millennials can't take pictures. <laughs> like, it's, good. it's a pretty big deal. <laughs> and so I was standing there just soaking it in, and it's just amazing. And that was the beginning of four of the best days of my life spent in Paris. So just amazing experience after amazing experience. And I wrote in my journal that... Um, just crying out to God, and I was like, how, how can you bless me this much? You have un- out done yourself these four days. I've just been amazing. And I just felt just the highest of highs, right? But I wouldn't have been able to experience that without the lowest of lows at the beginning of the trip. And I just didn't know joy could be that, could be that deep. It wasn't just happiness, right? It was that true joy. Um, and I think that we I don't know for you, but in this season, um, sometimes I feel guilty about being happy and joyful, um, especially in this season, because there's so much hurt and brokenness in the world. Um, and, but in this season, we're like supposed to be joyful, right? And yet, so, much, so many of us are going through things and grieving, and, and even if we're not doing something personally, there's just so much in the world that it's, it's hard to feel joyful. Sometimes it feels wrong. But God is so in that, too. Like, he is close as he is in the hard times. He is just as close in the joyful times. And I think that's the biggest thing that I took away from the trip. Um, that story is the beginning of an even longer one, if you ever want to hear it, of why I have the Eiffel Tower tattooed on my ankle now. Um, <laughs> and, but the biggest takeaway was just that night was such pure joy. And I know it was joy, not happiness, just because of the work that God was doing in me. I'd like to invite Margaret England. (laughs) 
So when life brings you unexpected seasons of one loss or deep disappointment after another, you can find yourself relating to that title character in Judy Bloom's story. God, are you there? It's me, Margaret. In January, we learned our son's marriage was abruptly ending with nothing to be done to reverse that outcome. In the midst of our shock and grief we experienced, as many of you did, the loss of several dear church friends and relatives over the course of the next several months. In our own family, we were also impacted by the passing of Greg's dear mom after a long decline from dementia. She was our children's last grandparent and especially close to our son. By August, I was feeling the weight of this ongoing grief. Darkness and doubt were pressing in, and I honestly felt like I could not handle one more disappointment. Really, God? Are you still there? It's me, Margaret. But sometimes, God shows up when you least expect it, offering a moment of surprise or a glimmer of joy. I serve as a deacon here at West Hills, and since the passing of Greg's mom, I have had a bit more time to regularly check in with one of our older couples, Joan and Don Barda. Don is 96 years old, a World War II vet, retired junior high school principal, and the dearest man with the kindest heart. While he can still get around, he needs constant attention from Joan. Joan is 86 now, a retired art teacher. <clears throat> they met at the school where Don later became principal and a retired Bible study fellowship teacher. They live close by and we've known each other for decades, sharing a love of art, teaching, and theology. I love listening to stories of when Don was a medic in the war, how he built their house by himself, or how he got up every morning at 5 a.m. to drive to Oregon City from Hillsdale for school. Since they don't get out too much now, they welcome visitors, rides to appointments, and opportunities to tell stories. For some reason, since January, we have been seeing more of longtime friends, Randy and Patty, who Greg knew back in college. We've known each other for decades, and with semi-retirement, at least for Patty and me, we've been able to connect more. Patty knew I had been teaching art since retiring from full-time teaching, and was recently sharing about her own mom's life as a retired art teacher. Her mom is 90 years old still living in her home in Oregon City, and still creating beautiful paintings and ceramics. For some reason, I immediately felt compelled to ask if I could visit her mom, though I didn't know why. So we made a plan for me to join Patty during a visit with her mom, Ladeel Nassen, to see her studio and admire her artwork. Since she doesn't get out too much now, she welcomes visitors and opportunities to tell stories. 
So I visited Ladeel last month. She is still very much with it. Her house is filled with paintings of flowers, birds, trees, and everyday items from around her home and garden. Her pantry is filled with home canned goods, including quince, what I had just discovered this last summer and promptly became obsessed with canning myself. We were clearly bonding. Her studio garage is filled with art supplies and tables where she still teaches ceramics. Her stories about her escapades as an art teacher were hilarious. The custodians were regularly complaining to the principal about, about all the art drying on the floors every evening. The home ec teacher was regularly complaining to the principal about Liddell using her supplies again, which she wasn't. The principal, however, always supported Liddell and somehow managed to keep the peace in their junior high school, staying above the fray of the drama swirling around him. In the middle of one of her stories, she mentions his name, Mr. Barda. My heart leapt. Art teachers, Oregon City, principals. I interrupted Ladeel mid-sentence. Wait, 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 wait. Are you talking about Don Barda? My Don Barda? Ladeel's and Patty's faces simultaneously burst with joy. Yes, that Don Barda. Ladeel said he was the best principal anyone could have ever hoped to have. Patty was also a student at the time and remembered Mr. Barda with great fondness. Our mutual surprise at this coincidence was simply priceless. On relating my discovery later to Joan, I watched her face light up with joy as well. She totally remembered Mrs. Nossen, the art teacher hired after Joan, plus all the stories of Mrs. Nossen that Principal Barda brought home. And yes, just last Wednesday, Patty and I managed to get these former colleagues together. So I need that picture. There we go. <clears throat> um, so they hadn't seen each other in 60 years. The look of joy on their faces when they greeted each other, the telling of more stories, the mutual love of art, and the making of even more connections, like how Patty's cousin, Ladeel's nephew, also knows the Bardas, was simply priceless. Being part of this little reunion was an incredible, magical gift of joy for all of us. So how is it I have known these people for decades and am just now, this year of all years, making this connection? Sometimes, God shows up when you least expect it, but most need it. Sometimes, he breaks in with an unexplainable, joy-filled, divine aha moment of, oh, that's why I'm here. Sometimes, God lets you in on his own little surprise party and comes as a momentary ray of light that pierces the darkness of doubt with a divine connection, a divine coincidence, a divine appointment, 
a divine interruption to the drudgery of despair. Call it what you will. It's a moment when your heart unexpectedly leaps for joy, just as baby John the Baptist leapt for joy in his mother Elizabeth's womb at the revelation of Christ's impending birth. A moment when God answers, Yes, Margaret, I am still here. This Advent season, I pray and I hope that we have that patience and the eyes to see these unexpected moments of profound grace and divine connections. These reminders that Emmanuel, God in fact, is still with us.